This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name, as always, is Alex Perny, and today we are very pleased to welcome on Chris Vermeulen, founder and CEO of <clears throat> excuse me, Technical Traders Limited. Uh, we're going to be taking a dive into some alternative ways of looking at traditional finance with regards to trading in securities markets. It's something that uh, a little bit outside the scope of kind of what we do in the alternative space, but I do feel it's very important to have a well-rounded view of personal finance. And certainly not everyone is just going to want to plug in and do uh, private securities, real estate as the entirety of their portfolio, uh, while it's not the kind of core focus of what we do on the professional side at Advanta. Again, it's very important to understand how a broad scope of investments can fit into your portfolio, and not just in the traditional sense either. Taking an alternative approach to something that has been around since the turn of the last last century, uh, the the 1900s, if you will, uh, which is wild to say that that was the 1900s that we're talking about. But in any regard, I always like to have uh, differing viewpoints and alternative ways of looking at things, even if they are uh, in the more traditional realm. So Chris, thank you very much for being on with us today. If you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, a little bit of background about your company, and then we'll kind of dive in uh, to kind of the traditional view of securities investing in the stock markets and kind of how uh, you are taking a different approach to that that people can maybe utilize. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Well, long story short, uh, I'm, I'm Canadian up just north of Toronto in Canada here. Got hooked into the stock market in, in finance class in high school when I was 16 years old and um, more or less just fell in love with it. It became kind of my sport, my hobby, my passion. I've been doing it for over 25 years. I've been I, I traded all through college. I've helped about uh, over over 25,000 individual traders and investors over the years. And um, I focus on on technical analysis, which means I don't really care about news, fundamentals, anything like that. All I focus on is price action as as we all want our investments to move higher. Uh, if they're not moving higher, uh, I use a strategy that allows us to find out how and when to move out of something and reallocate that capital into something new. So it, and this focus here is focused in the equities market, which uh, really is focused on the U.S. equities market. That is my core focus. And I uh, use ETFs to do that. And, and I was born and raised in an entrepreneur family. And I've always kind of run my own businesses. I built businesses, sold them off. I've got, I do a lot of different alternative assets like real estate, uh, uh, startups, and inventions, all kinds of different stuff. So I'm all about alternative investments and generating passive income. And the stock market is one of those alternate, uh, alternate investments. And the way that I do it, I consider it an alternate investment because the average person has got, you know, the buy and hold portfolio. They've got money just kind of sitting there maturing. Uh, what I do is is quite a bit different. And it's an alternate strategy, more or less, to, to take advantage of the stock and bond market and uh, securities side of things that gives you a lot more control and protection. So that's, that's where my focus has been because there's a lot of liquidity. It's easy to move in and out of assets. And so that's kind of where I really focus a good chunk of my, uh, uh, my time and money. 
Okay, fantastic. So again, that's, again, a, a high level of kind of, you know, the trajectory that you've taken to this position. Now let's kind of look at securities markets at all, as a whole. I, you know, everyone's familiar with it. You hear it on the news. Oh, I buy some Microsoft, I buy some IBM, whatever it happens to be, whatever flavor that, you know, floats your boat. What is kind of the inherent issues that you think that the typical investor kind of runs into when it comes to getting involved in the stock market in the first place? Because it's, you know, easy for two finance professionals to kind of, you know, sit, you know, up on our soapbox and say, hey, like this strategy is best, that strategy is best. But from the person coming in kind of at base level, you know, what they really kind of understand is, okay, you know, basic economic principle. I buy at one point, I hold it long enough, hopefully it generates some appreciable gain in value and then I sell it. Or maybe they're doing cash flow and they're buying some dividend stocks, um, whatever it happens to be. But let's kind of examine kind of the you know, typical profile, the typical avatar of the investor in the stock market, uh, and what you kind of feel is, uh, you know, maybe broken's the wrong word. Insert your own analogy as to kind of what you feel is is wrong with that. But let's kind of again frame this out from the person coming in, either fresh or they maybe they've just been doing this for a long time and haven't changed their strategy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the way the way I see the the way that the masses do things when it comes to the stock market it's kind of broken into two different realms. So you've got two extremes. You've got the buy and hold, which is just passive, set it and forget it, ride the roller coaster ride through bear markets, financial resets, all that stuff and, and bull markets, uh, which to me is a very dangerous strategy if you're in your later years. Yes, buy and hold is great if you're 20s, 30s, uh, but if you if you want to retire early, you want to control your capital, you don't want to be stuck in some type of drawdown, meaning your money is down 20, 30, 50% and you're here you are retired or about to retire and you lose half of that, that wealth. Uh, the, the buy and hold strategy carries a ton of risk and most people don't realize it, although I think a lot of them who are using the buy and hold realize how dangerous it is. Bonds are down more than stocks. They have been absolutely annihilated. And what people thought was a safe defensive play, bonds, is actually the biggest, highest risk asset they could have almost been in for their portfolio. So the buy and hold is very dangerous because, well, long story short is you never really see a buy and hold investor retire 20 or 30 years younger, sooner than, than, than they normally do just because it's average returns. You have a couple assets that do really well. You have, you're also going to have a bunch that do really poorly. And then you, by the time you net them out, you end up with the average four to 8% return, which isn't really anything uh, to, to get excited about. And then you got the other side of the spectrum of active traders. And the reality is there have been numerous studies, North America, Brazil, Taiwan, uh, that say, if you're an active trader, you trade for more than 300 days, even during a bull market, 97% of active traders lose money. Now I've been, you know, sharing trading signals and things like that for over 25 years. And I can confirm it is a rotating door because people get emotional when they get involved. The more active you are, the more active, the more likely you are to lose money. And so there's this, these two extremes, doing nothing and doing a lot, uh, being very active. Both of them are dangerous uh, in different ways. And what I do is kind of right in the middle of that is we are just active enough to catch these wave-like patterns that happen in the markets in different assets or sectors or areas of the, the securities market every year. And I like to think of it as uh, more or less, I'm like the surfer, because I'm a surfer, I'm like that, we're, we're a group of people that are floating out on the horizon. When you look on the beach, the surfers just past the break, and we're just waiting for a high momentum move of something in the stock market, like an ETF, 
that's got a lot of power to it, a lot of momentum. And when we see something like that, we jump on that wave. We ride the trend using technical analysis. We can identify when it's moving up, how much power is behind it. And when that wave starts to weaken, then we can just kind of carve out, get off that investment and wait for another opportunity. It's not about always being invested. It's about only being invested in things going up. If nothing is going up that meets the criteria, we are literally just waiting safely in cash earning interest. And so that's kind of in a nutshell for a passive investor, this strategy, which is only about five or 10 trades a year, seems really active because they're used to doing nothing. For the active trader, they're like, oh, it's not enough trades. I'll never make enough money with that. So it's a strategy that's stuck right in the middle. And that's why I, I've kind of named it asset revesting because we're taking our assets and we're just reinvesting it into one asset class within the securities market at a time. We only either want to own stocks or bonds or a currency uh, because one of them is always going to be outperforming and trending better than the other. So we just want to hold the one asset that is moving up. So that's it from a pretty high level. Sure. And before we kind of dig into that, I want to you know, kind of frame the the current market because there's a lot of interesting and depending on your frame of view for it could be very bad interesting. Uh, you know, you could be like, uh, you know, in front of the tsunami wave or you could be, you know, on the opposite or up the mountain depending on, you know, what your, your frame of view is. So one thing that, you know, most people and especially older generations kind of feel is a very safe harbor investment would be something like bonds. Um, and, you know, from a from a high level or from a, you know, securities background, really, what are the issues that are framing the volatility in the bond market right now? Yeah, I, I mean, the volatility in the bond market is we're we're seeing a tsunami of people starting to move away from them. They're starting to panic because they're hitting some uh, some multi-year lows now. But obviously, the rising rates are just crushing bond pricing. Uh, as rates go up, bonds go down. We're starting to see huge volume in the bond market or the bond ETFs of investors just starting to dump, give up on that asset class. I mean, I think I think most of the downside damage has been done. Bonds are down like 45, 50 percent, depending on which type of bonds you're looking at. Um, but really, this rising interest rate environment and rates probably staying up for for quite some time is going to keep the bond market very muted. Um, and it's going to be continue to be very choppy. I, I, I think a lot of people might be trying to pick a bottom in the bond market or thinking it's a good time to get invested. There still could be there still could be quite a bit of downtime, down pricing, uh, lower pricing and, and sideways pricing for another year or two. So there's you know, people don't want you don't want to get locked up in an asset that is still clearly in a downtrend and that might not recover for a long time because there's going to be lots of other alternate investments to get into. Uh, going forward. Now, do you feel like the bond market as a whole is, you know, again, it's the price correlation is going to be directly related to increases in the underlying, you know, Fed rates. So if we don't see an appreciable, you know, any more appreciable rate hikes, if we do have new bond issuances, now that we have higher interest rates, would that be a signal of price stabilization in this market? Or again, is it just something where there's been so much volatility and there's so much uncertainty around where the Fed is going to go with this? Um, what is your kind of thought on that? Um, just to you know, kind of give a high level of it. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think the bond market is is going to. Um, like I said, I think most of the downside for bonds are out. I still think it's going to be a volatile, choppy ride to hold on to them. And I think it could take a long time to work itself out. But uh, more or less, the you know, the, what the Fed is doing, I think um, if we do kind of go into the tsunami, this this kind of big market correction, 
the the Fed is most likely going to start cutting rates. I mean, they really didn't have any any bullets in their gun before in terms of rate cuts, and now they've got they've got so many bullets in their gun that they can drop a quarter basis points over and over again uh, to try to to try to uh, save the financial system and the markets. Which, as they do that, the bond market should start to rally. But overall. I mean, uh, it's still a kind of a dead asset at this time, and um, they're they're still not a safe haven play. I think there's there's still room that interest rates could still actually jump up another half a percent or percent uh, from here, and that is going to really create a huge waterfall sell-off in the bond market and catch a lot of people by surprise. Uh, the market's price action in in strong trends you usually get some of the biggest moves just before a trend ends. So. Bonds are trading really low, but they could, the bottom could fall out and they could lose another four, five, eight percent from where they are. So uh, there's a lot of risk still in the bond market. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's not a place that I would want to be dumping money right now at the moment. Yeah. And I think, again, the, the general sentiment for most investors, myself included, is kind of trending that way of, uh, you know, I've never really been a big bond guy. Um, granted, I don't do a whole lot of equities investing as far as the you know percentage of my portfolio that's invested there. But, um, you know, again, just watching it just as a, you know, trying to be stay financially literate um, is, has been interesting, to say the least. I didn't expect the kind of cataclysm of of uh, pricing to occur the way that it did. I mean, granted, hindsight being 2020, it's easy to see, you know, why it happened to the degree I'm still kind of surprised about. But again, it's, you know, kind of my two cents on it. Um, and the last thing I kind of wanted to ask is anecdotally with regard to the federal, um, you know, Fed policy with regard to rising interest rates. What do you think is going to be the markers that kind of lead to them curtailing the increased rates? You know, again, quarter basis uh, points going up. Uh, when do you think it's either going to stabilize or start to drop? Is it going to be um, better numbers for like the CPI indexes? Is it going to be better numbers as far as like, uh, you know, housing prices? Because uh, I think that was, again, the main driver for that was, you know, real estate related. But where do you see kind of the markers in the, in the larger economic sense happening to kind of curtail those um, relatively regular rate increases that we've seen from the Fed? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm I'm a pure technical analyst, so I don't really follow the news or or all the economic data so much. I've really my main focus is following price. Uh, I think eventually, the way I have always seen it is as the stock market starts to break down, consumer sentiment is changing, sales and businesses have already started to slow, and typically that's when the Fed starts to do. Uh, rate cuts is when the big wealthy people start losing enough money. They try to support the markets and they start cutting rate heights, uh, rates. And um, so, yeah, I don't I don't really look at the CPI and all that stuff. I think some of that obviously will play into it, but you never know what the Fed is going to do. We never know what that data is. And I mean, every market condition is so unique. There's always a different formula that they use uh, for that. So my whole thing is you know, when the market starts to fall and slide tremendously, we go down another, say, 15 or 20 percent from where we are. The Fed will most likely have slammed the brakes on for sure, not going to be raising rates. And they'll be probably be trying to work into their conversation that there's potential they might ease a little bit. Um, they won't want to say too much. They always try to be very cryptic and and things <laughs> like that. But uh, they usually need to see blood in the streets, investors losing a ton of money. And uh, that's when they start to usually kind of come to the rescue and and fire out some rate cuts. Yeah. And again, it's always kind of, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. I've always been kind of interested in the, why they're so guarded with their data and their reasoning behind things. I'm like, 
I mean, the whole like sentiment of the financial markets in the United States has been transparency for the most part. There's a reason that companies have to file all these different things with the SEC and FINRA, you know, all these different regulatory bodies. But the 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 people sitting in the cupola up top are just like, no, 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 you don't. You don't get to see this. I'm like, well, it would yeah. help. I mean, it would make people like analysts like you would make people that look at the larger kind of high level stuff like me a lot happier. But again, we can we can sit in a pine about how we don't like quasi governmental financial agencies running our business. But <laughs> yeah, that's a conversation for, sure. for another day. So again, appreciate you giving some information on that. I know it's kind of a little bit off the beaten path of what we're really going to be talking about in that, um, you know, financial strategies related to things that, again, are a little bit divorced from the traditional buy and hold, uh, you know, people that are looking at just bonds. So again, to kind of recap before we dive into that, you know, the people that don't see as much appreciable risk are going to be the younger population for the buy and hold. You know, you can buy securities when you're in your 20s and 30s and then ride you know, the markets for 20, 30 years and capture that four to 8% appreciable growth. Granted, if you're looking at it in the context of inflation, you might be lucky to break even. Um, and that's yeah. really assuming that over 20 years, we don't see 4% inflation, which I highly doubt that anyone thinks that that's a reality. So with that said, and again, with the issues with the bond markets, because that's kind of the, the normal transition, you get a little bit older, you take your money out of securities, you stick it in bonds. It's easy enough to realize, but again, as illustrated by how volatile the bond markets have been, maybe not exactly the best strategy. So looking at these things, and I think it's kind of maybe a fair statement to say, looking at the markets is just kind of a generality instead of looking at price point and the more analytical side is kind of where you saw the issues in the more traditional sense of things. Would that be correct? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And then Sorry, sorry to cut you off. But so with regard to that, where's kind of the first steps in when you took that divergent path of saying, okay, this is what I've seen now. How are you again trying to utilize financial analysis tools and what kind of strategies have you come up with that play into this alternative way of looking at traditional finance? Right. So when I when I first started trading, it was uh, in, in nine, 1997 is when I kind of got involved in the markets. I was trading small cap stocks. Everything was going up, heading up into that big tech bubble. And I was trading back then. I was trading small caps with good earnings. I mean, all I knew is you want to find companies that are growing and find out their quarterly earnings. And I moved into them. I owned them. I did exceptionally well. And then, of course, the tech bubble started to burst. And even though I found companies that were growing quarter after quarter and meeting meeting um, the expectations, the estimates, the share prices still got cut in half. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense. I'm like, these companies are growing, yet the share price, I lost half my money or more. And that was when I did a little search online back then. And I found out, oh, there's instead of fundamental following PE ratios and earnings, I could actually follow technical analysis, uh, following the price charts, forget everything else, just follow if price is going up, you want to own it. If it's going sideways or down, go find something else. And uh, and that was when I got into that because I lost a fortune buying solid companies on good earnings and uh, I moved to technical analysis. And then I realized, OK, well, now that I can tell that we're in a downtrend, I can profit from falling prices. I can avoid really volatile, trendless markets and I can jump into things that are moving up. And so that's kind of how I, I kind of navigated into that phase of being like, okay, forget anything to do with just fundamental news because you never know how the market is going to react to a piece of news. The Fed can say the same thing twice uh, on two meetings and the market does the complete opposite. You just never know how people are going to react. 
Uh, news is unpredictable. You never know when it's going to hit either. So I completely put zero value in any fundamental or news driven stuff. And I follow price. And um, so that's kind of that's the main focus of how I kind of got into into that aspect of things. Yeah. And I think it's a really good point that you make is that the, you know, kind of external like news and other type of information out there. I mean, again, to kind of just briefly recap, I mean, we talk about Fed, the Fed raising the, uh, you know, the, the inner, the interbank rates. And as it relates to real estate, you know, that was kind of one of the things we were trying to curtail was, you know, just these insane real estate prices. And that hasn't really affected it. I mean, it's still, I mean, a lot of markets still kind of a hockey stick from, you know, March of 2020 up into the right. You know, it's just kind of a 45 degree angle on the pricing chart for that stuff. So, and, you know, the Fed started raising rates, what was it, February of this year is when they ramped it up or was it in the end of last year? In any regard, throughout the entirety of that, it didn't really have an appreciable like marker in that that market. I mean, it hasn't some, but... Uh, yeah, again, that's a, that's a good point. So when you talk about looking at mainly focusing your analysis on price, now for me that's, and again, I'd like you to to kind of expand on this. But when I think about something and just looking at price, it's hard for me to divorce myself from the underlying data. So looking at P and E's, looking at uh, you know market capitalization, looking at a lot of different things is where my mind just goes. You know, when I think, okay, right. well, what goes into price? But you're saying that you kind of divorce that analysis of saying, hey, let's just look at price. So how do you kind of take that, you know, trajectory to just looking at price? And again, I, I would be very interested to learn just how you how you yeah. make that work in a financial and uh, make that work financially. Yeah, and that's a good question. So and that's where what I do really stands apart from kind of the traditional. So I look at the markets, um, not I look at them from different time frames because there's different major trends at play, plus there's smaller waves in the market. So, so you want to know what the long-term trends are, the shorter-term trends are, but pretty much all asset classes. It doesn't matter if, like to me, stocks, it doesn't matter what stock you own. If you own a stock or an ETF, it's it's in equities. It's it's an equity play. It's one asset class. Bonds is an asset class. Uh, Bitcoin or, or crypto is an asset class. Real estate is an asset class. So um, what I what I like to do is just look at what the stock market is doing. We've created um, lots of tools and, and, and analytics that allow us to gauge where money is flowing because everything is related. If money is going out of the stock market, that means the stock market's going down. That money is going somewhere else. And so we've the markets are interconnected. And so where we what we do is we find out where is all that money going? If the stock market's falling, where is it funneling to? And we want to know if it's going into a risk on place. So is it going into something that's highly risky or is it going into like defensive plays like maybe utility stocks, gold? Maybe it is flowing into bonds, even though bonds are going down. We want to know where the money is flowing. And so we've we watch a lot of different assets. We watch a lot of different sectors because there's high risk sectors, low risk sectors, dividend paying. And we are looking for the momentum. Where's all that money flowing? Just like looking at a set of waves coming through as a surfer, we're like, okay, Look at these waves. This money is flowing into these assets out of those assets where that money is flowing. Which one meets our criteria? Which one is on our asset hierarchy list? So, for example, uh, my main strategy is I have an asset hierarchy, which at the top of the hierarchy is the most volatile asset, which for my strategy is the U.S. stock market. And we naturally want to be in the most volatile asset simply because if it is trending up, it can generate really big returns. 
But as the stock market falls out of favor, we have different assets going down the hierarchy that are slower moving, lower volatility, they're safer, and they usually trend very, very well. So we might move into bonds or we might move into a, a currency. Currencies trend very nicely, or we might actually just want to sit in cash and wait for the, the current volatility in the market, the chop, to kind of shake itself out generate a new trend, give us a, a new set of waves of where money's flowing, and then we can jump back into that. So the strategy is all about trying to be in the most volatile when it's trending and then moving down when chaos is hitting the markets, moving to slower and slower assets. For example, 2022 was the year where stocks and bonds just tanked and you could have moved into the US dollar uh, ETF, which moved up uh, just perfectly. It was a very slow trend, but it moved up like 13, 15% through the year. And I mean, a big day on that is like a three quarters of a percent move, half a percent move. So you can really just continue to grow your money. It's slower, but you're growing your money while everything else is falling apart and everything is really volatile. And that's the key is just knowing when to step back, when to move over to something that's slow and safe. And then when the market's regain their traction and have clarity, we can shift our money back, reinvest it into a faster moving asset class. Gotcha. So that's kind of an interesting point that you make is that you're kind of, you know, from a high level looking at like, uh, you know, trading volumes, you know, where, where the, where people are selling, where people are buying, because at the end of the day, it's going to dictate price point for the most part. You know, if more mm -hmm. people are buying it, the price is going to be higher. Your bid ask is going to continue to go up. More people want it they can charge a higher premium for it. I think everyone kind of understands that basic economic principle, you know, supply yeah. and demand, which is one thing that I do kind of like about what you just mentioned is that, you know, it's it's nice when, especially for securities and this stuff can get extremely complicated that you can kind of grasp some, some nuggets of, okay, well, this makes sense because of X and not having to understand the entire rest of the alphabet because these two things hold true to balance your equation. So from that perspective of looking at, uh, you know, money velocities, pricing, uh, is it what would be kind of the general? And again, I understand if and feel free to kind of see it. I, I know when talking about trading principles that there can be a degree of secret sauce in this stuff. So, again, if my question hits a little bit too close to kind of like the the core of this adjust that at will but no is, is the majority of this that you're kind of looking at are they straight buys and again or, or are they kind of built onto option contracts is it something where it's being done on margin what's the kind of the general focus of of how you do this yeah so i keep it really really simple i have traded i have done all the different styles of trading and investing throughout the years and I found something that works perfect for my style, my personality type, uh, the returns that I want, the risk that I want to take. So what I do is the signals that, that I generate, they're end of day signals. So the market has to close. We compile our data. We find out, okay, do we have a new signal? If yes, then the next day at the opening bell, we move into the ETF. And I, I focus just on ETFs. And the nice thing about the strategy is we buy one position at a time. So if the stock market gives us a buy signal, we literally just put 100% of our trading account or our investment account into the stock market, the index ETF. Um, or if it's in, in the US dollar, we'll just move into that. So it's a very different strategy in terms of, it's not like we're diversifying. If you own the stock index, you, you are diversified. You own all of them in there. The stock market moves like the ocean. If the tide goes up, 
you know, all boats go up. If the tide goes down, boats go down. The stock market is pretty much the same. If it's going up, you just want to own it. It doesn't really matter what stocks you have in general. If it's going down, you don't want anything to do with it or you want to profit from falling pricing. So we move into this strategy. We use very simple orders. We get a signal. We put it in to buy the next day at the opening bell. It happens automatically. Um, and then from there, we manage our position. So when we get into a position, we'll say, okay, well, here's our protective stop. If for some reason, you know, the markets go against us and move down to this level, boom, it, our trade just closes. We close it out and we wait for a fresh new setup. If it continues to rally, then we'll we'll peel off, you know, 25% or 50% of our position when we hit our first profit target. We'll move our stop up and then we just let the market just keep running and we hit more targets and move our stop up. So it really comes down to managing your risks, uh, your risk in positions, which most people don't do. This is where most people completely drop drop the ball is they always throw a random number into a stock they want to buy. It's not thought out. They don't have stops and targets. They fall in love with what they buy. It starts going down. Nobody wants to sell something going down because then they're proven wrong and they still might like it. They'll be like, well, if I just hold on to it now, it'll eventually come back, which is a great way to waste a lot of time. Uh, that's what the buy and hold strategy is is really good at doing is wasting a ton of time. You can, after the 2000 tech bubble, stock market, the SP 500 took 12 years to come back. The NASDAQ took 16 years to come back. That is a long time with no returns and, and being down 50 to 85% of watching your money just vanish. So that is a very painful thing. We can always make money back, but we can't get time back. And this strategy just avoids the downtime. If the markets go down, we move to something else. Our account is just consistently hitting new all-time highs throughout the year because we're we're either earning interest every day or in something going up. And we don't have the downtime. Our downtime is us sitting in cash, earning interest, but our account is still growing. And when you can get 5% a year, I mean, it makes it uh, not a bad position to sit in for a month when you're waiting for the markets to, if they're tanking and plummeting like they are now, we can still pull uh, a fraction of a percent out and watch your account go up uh, while we're waiting. So it's, I mean, we're in a really prime condition. This is a huge opportunity, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, the tsunami, this potential major market correction that might eventually hit. It is a huge opportunity. And I mean, right now is the time to, uh, you know, a lot of real estate investors, myself, you can you can liquidate, you can put your money and, and make 5% with very little risk. And then we can have this financial reset. And then when home prices tank, as in Canada, where I am, most mortgage rates are three and five years and people have to renew them. And next year is the three year coming up for renewal. And I was talking to somebody who's, who's uh, helping service my car. And he says, hey, do you want to buy a house? And I'm like, uh, not really. But he told me his story and he's like, well, I was paying 1.9% on my house. In April, it comes up for renewal. It's going to be a 6% mortgage. I don't even make enough per month to pay for the mortgage at the new rate. And he's like, I have to sell. And so we're going to have this tsunami of, uh, of, of properties coming up for sale in Canada and the whole interest rates going up. It takes years to work through the system and it's going to be an incredible opportunity because somebody who's very savvy can say, okay, I'm going to start raising cash, make 5%, which isn't that bad. Uh, and then when home prices drop, say 10, 20, 30, 40%, uh, you can literally just swoop in with cash or put most of your money down and just refinance later as the rates drop, but you'll get a house cheap 
and uh, and eventually just refinance so your the house is there's so much opportunity coming around the corner, but it's going to be a slow burn. The real estate market is very delayed from the stock market. We're going to see the stock market crash first. Uh, investors who are heavily invested there are going to feel the pain. Then it bleeds over to homes, and uh, I mean it's just going to be. Uh, we've seen this cycle over and over again, so it's just starting again. It's either you are mentally prepared for it and you're financially prepared for it. Or you turn a blind eye and just suffer like the masses, unfortunately. And that's why I'm trying to educate and help people. I'm like, be prepared because what is happening is very dangerous for your financial situation. It's dangerous for your health. It's dangerous for your marriage. I mean, when, when financial times get tough, it's amazing. Everything becomes very brittle and uh, you got to be very cautious. Yeah, absolutely. And, and at that point, again, there's not to circle back around too far on this, but I'm a big... Love the real estate stuff. That's why I spend most of my time and what I got that large chunk of my career involved in directly in real estate. And from that standpoint, what my fear is with the like crashing housing prices, which again needs to happen to a point for the individual home buyer, whether that's the investor, whether that is, you know, the person that just wants, you know, four walls and a roof over their head, is the potential for some of these larger interests, whether it's someone like uh, BlackRock and B Reed, well, maybe not B Reed, considering they froze withdrawals the entire year. Um, but like something like that coming in and swooping in and then kind of whether artificially or just, you know, as a point of fact, just keeping prices high because there's still going to be a demand for it. I don't really know too much about the regulations for foreign direct investment in Canada. Um, I know in the United States, it's pretty wide open. There's not too much of an issue with uh, foreign entities or nationals or, you know, larger governmental organizations buying real estate in our country. So that's kind of my concern is that we're going to have still a lot of buyers and a kind of a price point that doesn't move as much as it does in correlation to the broader markets. Um, but again, that's just my maybe my, maybe a little bit of a tinfoil hat position to be taking on it. But <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's not. And again, the, the the frightening thing I think about that is that while yes, you know, maybe it is a bit of a tinfoil hat position, it's also not so far out of the realm of possibility where someone just doesn't go get some sleep, Alex. You're 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 you know you're you're out of your realm. I'm like, it's you know, it's it could happen. Um, but again, let's let's get back to the topic at hand because I could ramble on forever for real estate stuff. Yeah, I love, I love real estate. I own a lot of it. I am in self storage facilities. I mean, you name it. It's uh, it yeah. is the great long-term no brainer. It's one asset class you have to own. A yeah. Bunch and, of. <laughs> and one, it's great because one, they're not making any more of it Two, uh, you know, even if the worst happens, it's still there. You know, I, I like tangible stuff, you know, live, I live in Florida down here. It's beautiful. It's like 73 degrees and sunny right now. But uh, in the past few months, it's natural disaster season where we have these big things called hurricanes. I like to spin like a top and rip everything off the foundation. Even if that happens, it removed almost all of your asset, but you still have that asset. There's very few assets where you can carry insurance against the actual structure of the asset. You can't mm -hmm. insure a stock portfolio to any me meaningful degree. If, you know, no. if Enron happens, if WorldCom happens, you're out. Uh, you know, if the stock market goes down and pricing is affected, that directly affects your bottom line. Your house can get ripped off the foundation and you can be made whole again. That's again, yeah. I like I like real estate. If it doesn't show in the entirety of this podcast or my career, I like real estate. But anyways, um, so to the point of what you were talking about, about, uh, you know, the general 
way that you kind of track, uh, you have, you know, again, markers that I'm sure that is all kind of the more proprietary stuff of like what you're specifically looking at and how you actually determine those market, um, you know, the things that determine where your positions get rebalanced. But you mentioned that mainly you are plugging into different ETFs for kind of the rebalances, unless it's something like a, uh, like a cap, quote, cash position where you're investing in some type of, um, you know, interest bearing fund, if you will. But I think it's one of those terms where I think people sometimes are a little bit afraid to ask. They hear ETF all the time. Like, oh, yeah, ETF. Um, Maybe define what an ETF is real quick, because, again, I think that's one of those kitsch terms that comes out hard and fast. People hear it. They think they know what it is. But from your securities background, what is an ETF at a high level? Yeah, ETF stands for an exchange traded fund. So, for example, if you want to own stocks in, say, the biotech sector, well, you could either go out and buy 5, 10, or 100 biotech companies' stocks, and then you say, okay, I have that sector. Or you can just go out and buy an ETF, which is a fund that goes out and buys um, stocks within specific areas. So a biotech ETF would go out and own like a bunch of shares of all the different biotech companies. And so with one position, you could say, okay, I'm going to buy you know, $10,000 of the biotech ETF. And now I have exposure to that sector and I want to play that that move. So ETF is a very affordable way. It's, it's just, it's similar to a mutual fund in terms of it's, it groups everything together. One purchase gets you a basket of positions, uh, but ETFs are very low cost. Mutual funds are like one to 3% a year to carry those costs. ETFs are like a 10th of a percent or less in some cases. It's pretty crazy how affordable they are. So it just makes a very easy for somebody to get exposure to almost any asset or index or commodity or whatever it is yeah, with one position and at almost no cost. And just again, to kind of, I, th- I think people are very familiar with what the mutual fund is. Uh, besides pricing, what are some of like the big high level differences between an ETF and a mutual fund? Yeah, so ETFs are... Um, They trade just like a stock. So a mutual fund, if you want to move money in or out of it, you have to wait till the market closes and then they they give you a a fill. An ETF, you can literally day trade it. You can buy in and sell out seconds later. You can can trade it any time of the day. You can trade it in after and pre-market hours. So it's very, very liquid, very fluid. Uh, allows you to give full flexibility. A mutual fund is you, you pay a lot, you're stuck in it to the end of the day, uh, and then you got to pay a fee to, you know, to get out of it, uh, and it's not executed till the end of the night. Uh, so it, it's just, a, you know, the mutual funds are just the old archaic way of, of trading. They're high cost and slow and sluggish. Um, yeah. So kind of like the difference between like a DSL connection and a fiber connection, if you will. You know, it gives you the same internet, but one's a lot more, you know, high speed, low drag kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so from that perspective, with regard to, uh, I'm trying to just literally lost my train of thought on what my specific question for the ETFs was. Uh, how are these types of assets managed? Um, are they kind of like a hedge fund where you have managers or is it just kind of more of like a robotic sense where you have a company that puts together an ETF that says, okay, here's how, here's the market that we do. Are these things rebalanced too terribly often for their, like what companies they're actually invested in? Like what's the management aspect? Cause that is inherently a little bit of a risk in investing in anything that's not you directly making that decision is you're turning over some of that control and steering of that ship to another third party. So functionally, yeah. how do these things work a little bit? Yeah. So ETFs, I mean, they're all managed a little differently. Some of them will 
I think a lot of them have quite a bit of automation in them, but they they have a uh, a prospectus and you uh, they call it a, a fact sheet, a, a fund sheet. You look at it, it tells you what the criteria and what that fund is always trying to duplicate or replicate. And um, as long as you're comfortable with the, that strategy of what they're doing, then they're going to constantly rebalance, sell some shares. If, if one, sh one company's stock skyrockets in price, suddenly now they're too heavy weighted in there. They might have to sell some of those shares and then use that money to go buy some other uh, companies that it holds. But I mean, it's really just uh, the the mutual fund or the sorry the ETF managers will will rebalance as needed. It's usually nothing drastic. You don't really ever know what, you know what's going on. They kind of do it behind their scenes. A lot of them have their own proprietary ways of how they value and what they're moving in and out. But you're more or less looking to buy when you buy an ETF. It's something that you're comfortable with what they're doing what they're buying and holding, and you just let them do their thing. It's just going to try and mimic exposure to whatever it is you're trying to get into. And you can buy real estate uh, ETFs. There's REITs, there's self-storage. You know, It's pretty amazing how you can get into the, the real estate space, um, commercial real estate or residential or multifamily and self-storage. It's And they pay really good dividends. Uh, and the nice thing is you can move in and out of them, um, which I, I talk about quite a bit because a lot of people don't have money to especially right now to buy into real estate, but you can go buy a hundred dollars worth of a real estate ETF every month, collect their dividend payment on your, you know, it's not like you're going to get much with a small investment, but the ETFs allow you to get exposure to all, you can build a real estate portfolio with a, a couple thousand dollars and have exposure to wherever you want. Uh, the problem with it being in the stock market and those companies do fall in, in value. It's not based so much on the home value. Those ETFs will fall in value. So during a bear market, you do not want to be holding a real estate ETF. They can still fall 50% with the stock market. So there's still a very big difference in how it works. But if you don't have a lot of money and we're starting a new super cycle, a new major bull market, uh, and you don't, you can't afford real estate, you can go and buy a real estate ETF and ride that next bull market for three, five, 10 years, collect your monthly dividend payments and say, hey, listen, I own self-storage. I've got condos, <laughs> you know, you, you can build out a nice little portfolio until you've got enough to go buy your first multifamily property or, or self-storage facility, which, which is where my focus is. Certainly. And, uh, you know, to kind of bring it back a little bit center, since we're kind of getting towards the end of this, one thing I always like to make sure we cover is, uh, you know, we cover the risk of the more traditional way of doing things, but also as it relates to kind of your strategy, you know, you indicated that, you know, the ETS are kind of mainly where you plug in for, you know, what you're looking for to accomplish in a given investment cycle. Now, as far as ETFs as an asset class, I mean, they are traded uh, just like stocks. So there is a, a degree of uh, velocity of pricing on them. But what would you say are some kind of inherent risks that are built into them? Is it going to be, uh, do they get exposure to things like people writing tons of option contracts on them? Do they get exposure just mainly for the normal course of action in their underlying industries is a kind of a mixture of everything uh, because there's no such thing as a perfect investment. Um, besides winning the lottery, hitting the scratch off, you know, there's there's no such thing as just, you know, perfect 100% upside. So what are inherently some of the risks associated with the specific asset class? Yeah. So if, if you own, um, it really doesn't matter what asset it is, but if you're in the stock market, as we know, it can move very quickly up and down. Uh, so the, the risk is you do nothing and you let things start to fall. They keep falling and 
you don't take action. You ride that roller coaster down. And a lot of people just, they don't have the, the capacity to override their emotions to sell and exit. And then once something falls to a certain point, a certain percentage level, people are like, well, now it's down too much. I can't sell it. I don't, well, they think they can't sell it. They're like, I better just hold it now because a lot of damage has been done. Um, so, you know, if you're investing in an asset that is, that can move as much as the stock market, like you usually don't see home prices fall 25 or 50% in a short window. Stock market does. Uh, so you do have to be an active investor unless you want to ro ride that roller coaster. So your risk is you could experience what the passive investor does, ride something down through a very terrible, through a recession, through a bear market phase, if you don't know how to exit a position and um, identify trends. And so that's that's the same risk you'd have as with the buy and hold. It's just you need to take that step to be, okay, we now know the markets have lost their upside uh, momentum. They're trending lower. We need to step aside, let things reset, and then we can reinvest in when it bottoms and shows a new uptrend starting or into a different asset uh, going forward. Yeah, and I think that kind of is a nice way to bring it in for a landing of specifically kind of, uh, you know, the direction that you like to go with your investment strategy is saying, hey, look, all these same risks still apply. But with this type of asset class, we can, you know, have exposure to a market, we identify kind of the market and buy trends and figure out which ETF kind of fits that model of having the assets that we think is going to go in that direction, purchasing and selling according to that criteria. Is that kind of a fair assessment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people need to be patient because not a, you know... Ever, as we know, all asset classes go through huge waves. We just had this massive asset appreciation across the board in almost everything, and it's it's fizzling out. And a lot of people think they they you know they need to get into the, like for example real estate or into the stock market. I'm like, well, everything has a major cycle at play. I think real estate is going to have a great opportunity a few years from now. The stock market to me is still nosebleed pricing. Uh, you need to be able to step back and and be comfortable with being, you don't need to be in those right now. I know a lot of people that are like, I need to get a house. I need to get a house. I'm like, you really, I don't really think you do. I think you need to just sit back and wait and then pick the dream home that has everything you want on it, a garage, a workshop, whatever it is you want. Right. Uh, cause there's going to be a feeding frenzy or a lot of homes coming up for sale. Um, at least in Canada, the way the real estate works, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, you just have to be happy, understand these cycles and you have to be patient and let things reset before you jump in because real estate is great. But I believe if you bought in the last couple of years, uh, you know, you, you definitely paid a premium and it could take a long time for prices to get back up to those after we've gone through a full cycle and wave uh, versus if you just sit back and, and pick something up in a, a year or three from now, you'd be buying it, on a, you know, to me at a fair market value and you're going to get very instant appreciation plus, you know, rental income and all that stuff. And with that said, I think it's a good place to come in for a landing because just like you said, uh, you know, you, if you're investing in anything, it's important to understand what's going on. And if you don't, talk to someone that does understand what's going on, such as yourself, um, or not to toot my own horn, or such as myself, if you're interested in strictly the alternatives, talk to people that have been doing it for long enough to understand where the issues lie, how to navigate that stuff, and how to get into a position where it's going to be ultimately beneficial for you, not just in the short term, but in the longer term picture as well. Because you always need to look to the future, um, you know, look at the past for indicators. Um, but again, past performance is never going to be indicative of future returns. So understanding how to navigate a market of any regard, whether that's real estate, whether that is the securities market, 
in the context of saying, hey, what does the data right now currently show? And making decisions, one, rationally, and two, with good data and being able to interpret that, again, is very important. So, Chris, uh, I do appreciate you being on with us today. If people are interested in learning more about what you have going on, how to get more involved with maybe, you know, different strategies you have or, you know, you're a professional service provider, how can they get in touch with you? Sure, yeah. If, uh, if you want to learn more, you can go to my website, which is the technicaltraders.com. They can also pick up my book called Asset Revesting at Amazon, and uh, they can learn all about kind of what we talked on in much more detail there. All right. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on with us today. Again, my name is Alex Perney. This has been the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. As always, thank you very much for being with us and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.